Welcome back to I'm Interested. I'm Mike Greenberg, and I am delighted that you're with me here today. And I hope that you enjoyed, if you are a regular listener of this podcast, our little detour from the world of sports last week with Murr, James Murray from the Impractical Jokers, which is a show that I continue to love. And I really enjoyed talking to him and, and getting a little more insight into his understanding of the way they are sort of an oasis from the desert of nastiness that the world seems to be. This week, we go back to our uh, meat and potatoes, if you will, in the sports world. And um, my interview is with Jay Wright, the head basketball coach at Villanova. They've won two of the last three national championships. And um, I want to tell you, as I uh, introduce Jay here, that while this is the fifth podcast that we are bringing to you, this is actually the first one that we recorded. Uh, you will hear him talking about the Italian restaurant in Brooklyn, where we sat and chatted for an hour, talking about so many things with the extraordinarily interesting, extraordinarily successful, and yes, I'll say it so you don't have to, the extraordinarily handsome coach of Nova, Jay Wright. So the first thing is that I asked you where you would like this conversation to take place, and we are in a restaurant called Michael's in the Marine Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. So I'm interested to know why are we here? Well, this is this is one of my favorite restaurants in New York, and I haven't been able to get here as often. But the owner of this restaurant is uh, was a graduate assistant coach for me, Mike Kakachi, and he was a young guy that I met at Brooklyn Poly Prep as an assistant coach. His family owns the restaurant, and he was a Brooklyn guy that thought like my whole family's in the restaurant business, but I think I want to be a coach. And he came down with us for Villanova for two years, got his master's degree, worked his butt off. And little things like he couldn't find a place close enough to campus to get fresh pasta. <laughs> so I would hear people tell me, your assistant is sitting alone in an Italian restaurant, you're like three miles from school. He comes down here and eats by himself. And I would say to him, Mike, why, why are you going all the way down there? To, he goes, it's the only place got fresh pasta. I got to eat fresh pasta. So... He did a great job for us, but after he said, "You know what? I miss I miss the family business. You know, I I, I think I'm I'm a restaurant guy." So he came back with his family here. So I always like to come here. We had my son's confirmation dinner here after we played St. John's because in the coaching business, mm. my son gets confirmed on a Saturday in Philadelphia, but we play St. John's that afternoon. So I missed the confirmation. The whole family goes to the confirmation, takes a bus up to the St. John's game, and then a bus here to Michael's to celebrate. So it's a special place. You just took me to a place I had absolutely no intention of going, which is the way interesting conversations should go. So that balance. So you missed your son's confirmation. Now you are a – everybody knows above you as a family man and and your long marriage and, and all of that, how important that is to you. And anyone who spends any time around you sees how important that is to you. So how do you balance that? How how when you are, how how did you how did you feel missing your son's confirmation? It kills me. Like it, it's the it's the toughest part of coaching. Coaching is a great job. But the essence of coaching is you you're developing guys in really formative years of their lives from 18 to 22. While you're doing that, your kids are growing up, your own kids. And sometimes you find yourself sitting in a gym watching a 16-year-old uh, that you know probably is not going to be good enough to play for you, but you have to be there. So he's probably not going to play for you. And your son is 16. He's playing in his high school game that's very important to him, and you're not there. 
missing a confirmation. You know, it's a big part of a you know, Catholic family. It's a big thing, you know. And your whole family has to get a bus to leave the church in Philadelphia, come up here to watch the St. John's game. Thank God we won. Mm-hmm. And then come here in Brooklyn and celebrate everybody from Philly. So it is the hardest part for me of my job. And it's just, I struggle with it every day. What conversations do you have with your kids about that? Because obviously they accept it. They know it. So many wonderful things come with your father being the, the basketball coach at Villanova and being who you are. But obviously there are pluses and minuses yeah. to everything. What, what kinds of conversations are well, those? There, there's a lot of pluses too. When they're younger and they're growing up around, you know, these guys, you're on a college campus, you know, you're, you're inspired by academia. You're, you're growing up around, college athletes that are very committed that's good and they're always great with the kids yeah but then when they start playing their own sports people know who they are i remember my sons being in games and um kids chanting who's your father who's your father and uh and then chanting uh to my younger son you know your brother is better your brother you know and and just uh or Nova stinks. Nova stinks. While the kids playing a high school basketball game, right. so you're watching all that. So I'd always talk to them. I, I would say, like, "How are you all right with that?" You know, you, and they're like, "Hey, Dad, don't worry about it. I got it. I got it." Um, but still to this day, so Taylor, my oldest, is 25. Colin is 24. I I just had dinner with Dick Vermeil's sons, and one of the questions I asked them was, "How was it growing up?" I said, "You're," because I want to see now if they're if, even if they're still affected now. Mm-hmm. I think they did. I think we did all right. Thank God for my wife, Patty. I think we did okay. They're in good shape, but I still worry about it to this day. It's understandable. Okay, let's get to the things that I, I meant to talk about today. So, when people talk about and think about Jay Wright, the first thing that comes to mind is the clothes. <laughs> I'm not interested in that. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I'm you, not that interested you. in talking about that. You've won two championships. I'm not that interested in talking about that. You got a ton of great players. I'm not that interested in talking about that. Here's the first thing I'm interested in. Every time your team breaks a huddle, they say the word attitude. You wrote a book. After you win the championship, it's called Attitude. What does the word attitude mean to you? It's um, it's the most important um, aspect of our program. I always wear an attitude wristband. But if I meet somebody, and I just met a little kid in a hotel. If I meet somebody that I think has got a great attitude or could be inspired, I get, take it off and give it to them. So I don't have it on. But we, we look at it this way, that... You have control of certain things in your life. And even as a basketball player, you don't control whether you're 6'7 or 6'2. You, you really don't even control whether you have a 40-inch vertical or 28. You, you can improve it, but a lot of it's God-given. So what you do control every day is your effort and your attitude every day. And we practice in practice. Everything we do is set up to teach guys how they respond after a positive play, what is their attitude on the next play? And how do they respond after a negative play? What's their attitude? And then when they're young as freshmen, they are interested in basketball. That helps them in basketball. But as they get a little older and they understand it impacts life, we want them to live their life the same way. Every day and I wake up in the morning, what do I have control of? My effort and my attitude. That's it. Who knows what's going to happen to me? But if I know I can control my attitude, how I respond to everything, that's the greatest characteristic I can have. Where did you learn that? First, it started with my father. My father would would always talk to me about um, how you handle situations. 
You know, it was just as important as how you handle a negative situation. You know, um, I remember having a good game as a player in high school, and I, I'd come come back and, and to the house, and my dad say, "You play like a soft suburban kid." You know, like <laughs> and and uh, you're out there acting like you're you know all fancy. You, you know, it's more important how you how you conduct yourself during the game. He didn't put a word on it, but then uh, John Cheney, if you remember John Cheney Temple, he had. In Philadelphia, he had these billboards that said, winning is an attitude. They used to be up in Philly, and I, I like that, right? So as I started coaching at Hofstra, as a head coach, I started, we were bad in the beginning. When we got the job, we were 295 out of 302 teams. And the kids were giving us all the effort they could, but we were just bad. We were a bad team. But I was like, what? we shouldn't be feeling bad about ourselves. They can't do any more. They're giving me everything they got. What can we feel good about? We can feel good about it, is we're coming in with a great attitude every day. Then I started to put it together, and we started that at Hofstra. We would put say one, two, three attitude. We just we knew we were going to lose, so we'd say, <laughs> "Hey, we wouldn't say it, but we knew it." We would say, "Hey, all we all we can control here tonight is our attitude." Like, yeah, if we're down five, let's keep let's look at the next possession. So then we just kept building on it, and it really be, it worked for us, and it became a big part of our program. The the other. Um Bracelets, if I understand it correctly, that you have are humble and hungry. Oh, are yeah. the, and, and so is that a this similar concept? the only concept? time I don't have it on. I just gave it to kids in a hotel. Attitude usually refers to when things aren't going well, you, you control your attitude. And you, you can have a positive attitude. It's all about how you approach the next step. But it's just as – so when we were just building it, we were losing a lot. So attitude was way more important. But as we got successful – how we handled that was important too. And we, we realized that in life, how you handle a good day, right? Or a successful day is just as important. And, and so we, our humble and hungry became important that even though we're having success as a team, or even if you win a game, how we approach the next day, we have humility. We're not, it doesn't make us any better than anybody else. And even though we're having success, we have to stay hungry to continue to improve. So, like, all the guys, they're getting drafted, which we keep talking to them about, they stay humble and hungry. That's, even though you're getting close to reaching your dreams, you got more goals. You, you got to stay humble and you got to stay hungry to keep getting better. That's fascinating to me. And I think the hardest thing in the world to do. So I started out in the business covering Michael Jordan's teams and people ask me about him all the time. And what I always say is he was the most determined person I've ever been around in my entire life. He managed to keep that. Is, is that something you think can be taught? Like he was, he was the most famous person, I believe, yeah. on the planet at the time that I covered I him. And he was the best player ever. I agree. And yet he treated practice every single day the way a lot of other guys, I think, would treat game seven of the NBA finals. Do you think that's something that just is inside of you? Are you just born with that or is that something that can be taught? Well, I think he is the greatest example, and I, you know, I used to use him as the example all the time. But now that kids are, kids don't relate to him. LeBron, do they not? Do the kids that you coach not know, know much about Michael no, Jordan? No, they know. Yeah, they know, but they don't know that. Right. But if at that time when he was playing, even if you didn't realize what he was doing, it impressed you that that guy every day, you could see even when he had bad nights, he wasn't making shots. He'd be a killer at the end of the game. You know. He had the greatest attitude ever. I can't use that now with those with our guys, but we try to teach exactly what Michael Jordan is, and it's not. It can't be through basketball. It can't be. You have to practice hard every day. It's got to be. 
You have to live your life as a person that is a humble person that whatever you're doing, you want to improve and grow. We use the word lifetime. You want to be a lifetime learner. We talk to our guys about, you know, we have a triangle. We say it says play hard, play smart, play together, play with pride. That's at the top. But then we tell them that's how you want to live. You want to live with great enthusiasm and passion. You want to live thinking about others. You want to be a lifetime learner. And you always want to be take pride in what you're a part of, not your individual success. So we do try to teach them that. We'll continue in just a moment with more of my conversation with Jay Wright. But first, I want to tell you about LinkedIn. So I've been telling you the right hire can make a huge impact on your business. And that's why it's so important to find the right person. But the question is, where do you find that individual? You could try posting on job boards. But can you really be sure the right person is going to see that job? Instead, find the person who will help you grow your business with LinkedIn. As the world's largest professional network, people go to LinkedIn literally every day to grow professionally and discover job opportunities. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already there. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on more of who they really are, their skills, their interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. This way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. Most LinkedIn members haven't recently visited the top job boards, but 9 out of 10 members are open to new opportunities, so you can only reach them on LinkedIn. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. And businesses rate LinkedIn 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. So do this. Hurry to LinkedIn.com slash Greeny right now. You get $50 off your first job post. That's LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. Get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash Greeny. Terms and conditions apply. I read in preparation for this. I found the most fascinating interview with you in GQ magazine for March of 2017. Actually, Josh Macri, our producer, found it and sent it to me, and it is just fascinating. And I want to read a sentence from it that I thought was really interesting. He wrote, To spend some fly-on-the-wall time backstage with a major college basketball program is to marvel at the diversity of decisions that confront the head coach. He is a CEO, toiling at a strange and singular work, running a lucrative persnickety operation <laughs> so i'm interested to know i mean you're a basketball coach right you're you you i'm assuming are most comfortable in sweats with a whistle definitely and you're done what percentage of your time is spent actually coaching basketball uh my, mike i could talk about this for hours but, I, but now that we've had some success it is probably my second greatest challenge to still staying humble and hungry and staying committed to my family is Making sure I'm coaching Villanova basketball and being on the court with our guys. Um, I've never missed uh, a practice or an individual workout it, because I feel like they're coming to play for me. But with all that said, you know, I'm here with you, right? Yeah. And we're going to the draft and we had NABC foundation meeting, uh, dinner. So you have to do that. Um, but to answer your question Clearly, I would say as a college basketball coach, time on the court with the players would be about 30% of your time, 30%. And, you know, I have young coaches that um, we, we have a position on our staff called director of player development. It's an endowed position for former players that think they might want to be a coach because everybody thinks that hey, watching on TV that looks like fun. But mm-hmm. we have had four guys in that position. Three of them have gone on to the NBA as coaches because they said, 
this college coaching, I had no idea you were doing all this stuff when we were in the dorms. Mm-hmm. And only one, Mike Nardi, who's on our staff now, decided to stay in college because college coaching is part of education, fundraising, um, recruiting, a lot of recruiting, a lot of life skills, just talking with the guys. Not pro basketball is you're on the court with those guys coaching basketball. Yeah, it's it's more about the games and yours is more about all sorts of other things that yeah. go on. All right, another thing that I thought was really interesting in this uh, interview in GQ. Uh, this is a quote from you. After winning the first championship, you win one national championship and now you have all the answers. All the attention is really scary because it's intoxicating. That was after you won the first championship. Between then and now, you win another title and and, and you go from being a well-known coach to being the guy. I mean, right now, would you ask someone, name a college basketball coach, probably most people would say Mike Krzyzewski and then they're going to say Jay Wright. That's nice. That's just the reality. That's, That's that's that's, That's the life you lead now. So tell me about the intoxicating part and, 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 and how you have to combat whatever comes yeah. with that. I guess what we talked about before, that's the challenge, right? Is um, In 09, we went to the Final Four. And in our business, going to a Final Four kind of it, – it's a crowning achievement in our business. Mm-hmm. I don't, would you say that way in the media? Yeah. They look at it that way? Well, coaches do. For a coach to make the Final Four, yes. Yeah. It is a distinguishing factor. Yes, in, in he has the, coached in a Final Four. What would be something in your business that would – do that there isn't really a good no i mean i just i guess being at espn probably because the business is a really big business there are thousands of people all over the country right now that probably could do my job as well as i do it and a a variety of circumstances are the reason that i'm at espn and they're in other places so it's it's probably something like that and the final four is the same way there's a lot of john cheney's never been to a final four um there's been a lot of great coaches so in our business and that's really what I care about, what coaches think it's big. So when we went there in 09, I thought, wow, that's that's pretty cool. Now I've kind of proven myself. And, you know, everything comes at you. Uh, you know, and I thought, okay, now i got to be what Villanova people want their coach to be. They, I, you know, i got to be like John Calipari, Mike Krzyzewski. i got to try to do that now. That's my job. Not, not ego-wise. I just thought that's what they want me to be. And I started – you know, we started recruiting that way. I started living that way, and and I, it it almost broke our program. It almost broke our program. So then, when we won, I knew we, we luckily got it back. But when we won, I knew that I had been through that, and I knew that it, it got intoxicating. And so it was a fight after we won it the first to to not get caught up in what people thought you should be, what people say about you. Stay true to who you are. And we did a pretty good job, and I think that's why we got to the second one. Now the second one notches it up, and I got I got to keep fighting it. It's not, um, you know, like our teams going to the SPs. We we got four or five nominated. I, I went last time. I'm gonna go. I'm sending the team. They love it. The system. I'm gonna recruit. It's a recruiting time. Mm-hmm. You know, I loved it too. I went there, but I work for Villanova. You know, I want to be with my family, coach my team. That's where I can't get. Let the intoxication affect me. Humble and hungry. You know, I remember the first year that we were doing Mike and Mike, 
was the year Tom Izzo and Michigan State won the championship. And I remember we ran an interview that Dick Vitale did with him. And, and Dickie V, as only Dickie V can, <laughs> is just yelling at him, your life is going to change, your life is going to change. And so I've always asked people, like, how did your life change? Can you give me an example of the way your life changes when you go from being a well-known coach to now you've, you mentioned before, the Final Four is one thing. Now you've won the championship. Yeah. What's one example of the way your life can change? Uh, well, you make a lot of money. Yeah. You know, which, you know, we always talk to these kids about, hey, when you go to the NBA, don't let this money change you. You know, stay humble and hungry. Hell, I'm, you know, I, I don't know. I was like 53 or something, 52 when we won it. I'm 52. And all of a sudden you start making money like that. It, it, it changes. You're able to do things you couldn't do, you know, and you don't want it. That That's just one reason. Uh People recognize you everywhere. You know, you, you Philly's a great town. You, you know, they, it's it's a pro town, but they love college basketball. Um, you, first time in your life, you go into places. People come up to they ask for autographs. Right, it's it's fun for 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 a few times, but then when your kids are with you and you haven't you've been on the road for a week recruiting, you finally got your family together. You're having dinner. People are coming up. It finally hits me. All right, now I realize why some of those other people when they wouldn't give autographs, I would think. Come on, man. What's wrong with you? Give the, give the guy an autograph. Right. But I didn't realize that that guy's been away from his family for two weeks, so you got to deal with that. Like Those kind of things you never think about, but they start hitting you. And selfies are the new autographs. Now. Oh. They, it used to be autographs. Now everyone wants to take a picture. Better point. That's a better point. It's way more selfies. And that's more intrusive. Autograph. I mean, it, it, again, I don't want to make it sound like it's the worst thing in the world, no. and I'm not nearly as famous as you are, but no. people want to take a picture, and that just takes a little more time, and it just sort of is what it is. Are you now at a point where most places you go, you have to make some sort of prearrangement? Like, you walk in the door here, and everyone knows who you are. Everyone waves, and they leave you alone. For the most part, if you want to go out with your family to a dinner, to a movie, yeah. to whatever it is, are you okay just walking into a yeah, restaurant? Yeah. 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 Philly's a good town. That yeah. Way. They it's that's what I love about Philly. It's a pro town. Basketball, college basketball is important, but Eagles, Phillies. That's like I, I know I've talked to John Calipari, Bill. Something when you live in a small college town like that, it's much more difficult. I, and that's part of what I love about our job at Villanova. It's even Villanova people. They it's they keep it under control, but there's there's new challenges. Um, it being at the beach in the summer, like I, one of the things I love to be at the Jersey Shore is mm-hmm. go work out. I can't, I can't. I had to find a place I could go by myself. Now that's new. Yeah, yeah. Because like, like, everybody talks to you, and I, I love people, right? Like you, I'll take selfies. But if you put yourself in that situation, then you're going to have to do it. So don't put yourself in that situation. Right. I often think about that, like. To be, and I, I'm not asking anyone to feel sorry for them, but to be LeBron James, to be Michael Jordan. I remember I was in, uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in a restaurant in, in Palm Beach, Florida, and Michael Jordan walked in. And I remember they had to like usher him aside. And I mean, I've known Michael Jordan for 25 years. And so I went over and said a quick hello, but they've got to move him. Like it, it's, it's yeah. almost like the secret service yeah. to get him from one place yeah. to another. And I thought yeah. to myself, that would be a very unusual way to live yeah. your life. Don't you it, think? It, it looks, even for my whole coaching career, it looks like it would be fun. Right. And like you said, we have another saying, uh, don't tell anybody your problems. Because right. 80% of the people don't care, and the other 20% are happy you have them. Right. <laughs> so it's like uh, we, you and I talking about this, it's not that anybody should feel sorry for us. No. We, we love where we are. But it is a part of it. Everything comes with a sacrifice. And like you said, our level compared to a Michael Jordan or LeBron, it, it's really intrusive. And it changes how you can live. You you can't say, 
hey, you can't call your guys. Hey, guys, I'll meet you. I'll meet you down at Michael's, and and let's get dinner. You can't do that. Right. right? Changes your life. Okay, so I want you to tell this story that I will admit I didn't know for some reason. And I covered the Final Four when you won the championship game, the first one. I did not know that your team threw you out of the locker room at halftime. Tell me that story. Yeah. They didn't let me in. Um, (laughs) We did not play a good first half against North Carolina in the 16 championship game. And our guys knew it. We, we, we did not, we were good all year at following a game plan. Really smart guys, really committed. We did not follow the game plan in the first half and the guys knew it. So we were coming to the locker room and you know, you have that long, long walk in yeah. those arenas and they all got ahead of me and we were coming to the locker room and everybody knew it. So when I got to the door, Daniel Chefu, our senior, closed the door. He said, coach, I got this. Now Daniel Chefu, who was a great leader, but could get a little wacky. Um, and we had some incidents during the year. Nothing bad, but we knew he, he was overly competitive. The assistants look at me like, no way. No way. Don't let him do this. And it was a real defining moment for us where I, I'm looking at my whole staff and they're saying, no way do you let him talk to the team. And I was like, I said, nah, let him go. Let him go. And my assistants were dying. And I really wasn't sure about it, but I just felt like it was, it, I had to make a quick decision. You know, I, it was either you have to fight with them and grab the door or bang to come in. I was like, let him go because I want to act calm here. And I could hear him in there yelling at them. and But basically given the message that I would give. And it, it, the final four, those half times are extra long. They're 20 minutes. We're, we have the 15-minute timeout, 15-minute uh, halftime. We have that broken down. So I was able to come in and just say, hey, guys. Daniel's right. Daniel's absolutely right. What he said is right. And he took up some time, but we had extra time. So I said, let's everybody calm down here. You guys get drinks. Get yourselves ready. The staff will go meet. Because we were listening at the door. We were listening to him. (laughs) So we didn't get to talk because we wanted to see what he said. Let's calm down. And the staff went and met. And then we came back in and real simple about we got to get back to our game plan. So it really worked. Um but it was a difficult decision. It worked out well. Uh, I would be interesting if what my staff would be thinking about me if it didn't, because they were totally against it. And they, I was kind of with them, but I felt like I didn't have a choice. Did it feel when it's happening? Because again, I read this. I had never heard this. I don't know why I never heard it. I don't know. Was it well known? Was was that something you talked about a lot no, it after wasn't. it happened? I, put, I, I think I wrote it in our book. So it's fascinating yeah. to me. So so while it was happening. Were you, were you, did you have time to process it? Like, my no. team, this is the championship game. My team is in there. No. One of the, one of the players is, is addressing them. And I'm, lo- for all intents and purposes, locked out. No, I am. Out. I am. Like, in a, this is a scene in a movie. Yeah, it is. Because my only choice would have been, like, bang on the door, hey, and fight with him when I went. Cause he, he was a really demon, he wouldn't have just taken, hey, Daniel, shut up right now. Cause he's so competitive in a positive way. He, he would have been, arguing with me like no coach we're not we're not doing this we're not doing that so i felt backed into a corner you know and i and 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 also you know in front of your assistants you you look like hey he's given in and you know that daniel and i had gone at it before um so they know that so and usually i would never back down and they know that and so does daniel so i did i said you know no let him go and then we're at the door listening and they can hear him he starts off in a in a rage of profanities, you know, and, and they're, they're looking at me like, you know, get in there. 
I was like, let him go, let him go. And then he got to some relevant points and it worked out fine. But at the time you're doing it, you're, you act like you're under control, but you're in more of a panic. You win on this unbelievable play. You win on one of the most famous plays in college basketball yeah. history. Do you remember the first conversation you had with Daniel afterwards? And the game is over. You've won. That moment happened. Did you find each other? Did you say anything about the halftime? Yeah. After you win, there's so much time with the celebration on the court. And everything that goes on there, I don't think is that meaningful. Like you embrace and you usually you're just saying, I love you. We did it. Is, there's not really meaningful conversations. You, you go up and do all. It's about 45 minutes before you get back to the locker room, right. and that's you know we hold hands and pray, and that's that's when we talk. Like I can get emotional now thinking about it, and that's when it's meaningful, you know. So we do that, and then you just kind of go around to each guy, and and then when I got to him, I, I we kind of laughed like he was a. He was a tough guy, a really positive, good guy. But as I said, in practice sometimes, his over-competitiveness, he could lose a little bit. And, it, and the only one that could control him was me. So when we embraced, I was kind of like, you, know, you were good, man. You were good. And it was kind of his way of saying, my way of saying, like, you know, you've, you've had some crazy moments, but you pulled it out here. I said, you were really good. And, you know, he was just emotional. I, said, I love you, coach. I love you. That was about it. But he knew what I meant. You almost got emotional there. Thinking of what specifically? What is it about it that makes you emotional? Being in the locker room with the guys, that's, that's, that's what it's all about. It's, um, it's, it's not the game. It's not what goes on out there. It's those guys. It's really cool. It's really cool. It's gotta be. In all honesty, that's the part of it I regret. Like people ask me, I have the greatest job in the world. Right. But I always say if I had it to do over again, if I had known that there were going to be people like Theo Epstein and Brian Cashman who never played, who, who could have actually been in the arena in one way or another, I would have done that. Because what I'll never know is that. Like yeah. you, for the, where this is a podcast. You can't see it. But coaches, obviously, you have tears in your eyes. You're emotional remembering it. That's something I'll never have. Yeah. You know, if teams I root for win, I'm incredibly excited. And then, like, I'm looking around. And I didn't really do anything. You know, like, that's it's, a feeling I'll never know. It's what every coach that um, I did, I get, I do, I get emotional about that. But every coach that goes into TV, I always ask him because I always think about, all right, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I love this. I don't want to stop. But they're in TV, and I say, um, how, how do you like it? They say, oh, I love it. It's great. But. I miss I miss the competition. I miss being with the guys. I remember Jim Valvano when he was dying of cancer. Um, he he, Coach Massimino was the head coach at UNLV. We brought great. We had a, a midnight madness. It was it was Jim Valvano, um, Mike Fratello, um, Tommy Lasorda, and Dick Versace. They were our coaches for midnight madness. <laughs> so. And we brought, we honored Jimmy V. He was close to, to dying. Yeah. And he, we had him talk to the team and we're in the locker room and he shows us a shunt he's got in his chest and, and, and he says, you know what guys? It's, you know, this is what I miss. I miss being in the lock. I mean, he's close to dying. He goes, I miss being in the locker room with the guys. And it was just us guys in there, you know? And it's something as a coach. You can't describe to anybody, and, and it's why does Larry Brown keep coming back and coaching? Why does he take a job in Italy? That feeling, that why does Roly Massimino coach 
till he dies, literally on the court. That that bond is so special, and uh, you you love it. I do love it. Okay, I want to read one more quote. This is early in your career. on a podcast. Am I an no, idiot? No, it's, huh? it's this is. It. <laughs> Everyone is very excited, I think. Um, so, so in this portion of the article, again, I want to give all the credit in the world to uh, this uh, the writer, Larry Platt, yeah. in a March 13, 2017 edition of GQ. It's, it's one of the most fascinating interviews I've ever read with a cool. person in my life. But so I guess early in your career, your teams weren't winning the way you wanted them to, and you figured out that X's and O's are all basically the same. Everyone's got, for the most part, I'm paraphrasing now, but this is essentially what you're saying. X's and O's, everyone's got them, and everyone's doing some variations on the same theme. But, quote, we spend a lot of time on how we react mentally to every situation. So you touched on that earlier, but let's just go to finish here. Let's go a little bit more deeply into that. How do you do that? So so, so I I, I watch uh, kids play basketball all the time. And I see kids, you know, they miss a bunch of shots, their heads are down, they're walking, you know, whatever it is. How, How do you coach that? How do you teach that? And what does it do? It, it takes discipline on the coaching staff's part. So we have a back stairwell that you come out of our office. You're down a back stairwell to go onto the practice court. And painted on the wall as we walk down the steps says, we practice to create habits that will enable us to be successful in the most difficult situations. Those habits are how do we react? How do we think? And then before we walk out to the door, it says success is our team playing Villanova basketball for 40 minutes for each other. It's reminding our staff every day when we go on the practice court, what are we doing here today? We are teaching them the habits and creating habits on how they mentally handle every situation. Now, the players come down a different hallway. The same saying, we practice to create habits that will enable us to be successful in most difficult situations. And there is, when you go through the double doors to go into the practice court for the players, it says at the top, every day, I thank the good Lord for making me a wildcat. I stole that from the Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> remember, remember, uh, Derek Jeter's Gatorade? Remember that, that piece they did when he retired? Yeah. And they showed him standing on the steps with that of the... I thank the good Lord for making me a Yankee. Sure. So I stole that. So we, but it's all about what are the players thinking? When they come into practice, what are the coaches thinking? Because we're coming from two different places, but we got to be at the same place when we're in there. We talk to them about how they step over the line to start practice every day. It starts with that. Where is your mind? We have a term, be here now. We talk to them. I don't care if you had a bad test. I don't care if your girlfriend broke up with you. You are here now. This is two hours where you're here to be a better basketball player. Everything around them on the court, there's no banners in there. There's no national championships. There's no pro jerseys. It says, play hard, play together, play smart, play with pride. It's the only thing that's on the walls. Attitude behind each basket on the wall. And it's the habit of how do you begin to stretch? Where is your mind? How do you respond to a coach? How do you move from one drill to another? Where's your mind? It's what we do. And you have to do it every day. But it takes the staff thinking about that. And being in tune to that to stop them and educate them. So that's what we're trying to teach every day. A little bit about that stuff that I know. That's not something that works when you do it once, right? That's something that you literally have to do every single day until it becomes ingrained in guys in ways they don't even realize it's happening. Exactly. And now we're, well, over the last five years, 
once you get that established now, the players help the coaches establish that because, as you said, it's ingrained in their mind. It's a habit. Just like if you're a player and you come in and you shoot BS left-hand hooks to start practice every day, that's easy. It's easy to create a bad habit. But it's your habit. It's what you're going to do. And the other term we use is when when you get tired, you're always going to resort to your habits. So let's make them good ones. So when you're tired, and that's what we talk about at the end of games, you know. So we – but when when we create those good habits, we don't have to talk to the – juniors and seniors about how they walk in it's just their habit they walk in ready to go and now the young guys are watching that so not only are we telling them but the younger guys are saying hey Jalen Brunson does that look look at and now this year we're losing a lot of those guys and we're going to have to kind of re-educate again so let's do a little actual basketball conversation okay because this is my podcast <laughs> I'm going to give you three ways we need to change college basketball okay, okay? and you're going to tell me how right I am uh, <laughs> The first is, why are we not playing quarters? I don't understand why we are still playing halves. I, I have, there is now, is there another place in the world that they're playing basketball in two 20 minute halves rather than in four 10 minute quarters? That's a change that should be made yesterday. There's a lot of benefits to that. I believe the reason they're not doing this, this is what I believe, is over the last few years, there has been an issue about college basketball games going too long. And TV, needs a certain number of television timeouts. And if you went to four quarters, that would add more stoppages, more timeouts, and the game would go even longer. Everything we're doing is to try to shorten it, the fouls at yeah, the end of the game. Right. So that would make the games longer. But I wouldn't. think that's the only I think every other basketball reason as you're saying you should go to quarters. I, I really think it's for TV. I, I get that. But and I'm the just, length of the game. I'm just thinking this out, though. If you go to four quarters, one of the benefits is you reset the fouls, the team fouls, at the right. end of the first quarter and the end of the right. third quarter. So it will not be a parade to the free throw line. If a team gets in the double bonus in a college basketball game with 11 minutes left, there is a stoppage every 40 seconds, every time there's a foul. Yeah. So if that resets, I feel like it will go a little faster. I mean, I don't know if I'm robbing from Peter to pay Paul. I can't make these TV decisions. Yeah. But if, from a basketball standpoint, you should be playing four quarters. We, and that's the main reason why is to reset the team fouls. Yeah, I, I think basketball standpoint, we should. I, I really do. They have those numbers from the NIT. Yeah. I also think after doing it, they have now they have evidence that the games go longer. They do go longer. They do. Okay. And, um, and it might also be because they – they do get into the bonus earlier in the quarters, right? So they're, it's spread out. So they want to shoot more foul shoot, shots. They're still shooting the same number of fouls. It's just spread out in the quarters. Okay, so we, we'll, we'll figure that one out together. But for the most part, let's just, for the sake of this discussion, we'll say I was right. Basketball <laughs> <laughs> wise, I agree with you. The next, as a lifelong college basketball fan, I believe that they need to change the personal foul limit from five to six. It drives me crazy. That a player gets his second foul four and a half minutes into a game. He is a, going to be a non-factor in the entire game. I'm thinking of Greg Oden in the national championship game for Ohio State, whenever that was, and who knew it was going to be basically his last hurrah, unfortunately, for that kid. But he got an early foul trouble, and he doesn't even get to play. I, I, I personally believe that that is too significant of a factor in college basketball, and they should change the limit from five fouls to six fouls. This shows me how much I watch you on TV because I've heard you say these <laughs> things. Okay. And I, and I'm actually remember. 
remembering my answers when you were okay, saying. Okay, let me hear. Um, there is a, a, an intent in college basketball to make the game more free flowing, less fouls. It, I don't know if it was, remember what was the game that Wisconsin played in the Final Four? It was years ago. You remember this stuff where there, it was like a. 54, yeah, and it, the game took forever. It was fouling. After that year, they said we got to we got to make create less fouls, make the game more free flowing. I think part of the concern is if you go to six, it's going to give guys leeway to foul more. Keep it at five. You're going to have to, as a coach, teach. And I think it's actually happening. You have to teach better how to defend without fouling. It's actually making teams less effective defensively scoring is up and the five foul situation isn't affecting teams like it used to with the time that you're referring to Mm -hmm. with Greg Odom it it was a physical game refs were letting you play that way so to be effective you had to be physical now you don't have to be physical I mean look at Steph Curry who arguably could be the best player in the game he's not you know not a physical guy it's it's a free-flowing game now and you don't really see foul trouble being that much of an issue anymore, right? Not the, the one pros. you refer to with Odom, but even in college, yeah, you don't see that too much. I and feel like in pull. the second, but the, the problem I have with it is if you, if one of your players gets a second foul five minutes into the game, he's not going to play the whole rest of the first half. But because of the way games playing now, we that thinking is changing. We're playing guys with two fouls more because the game's not as physical. One of the things we used to fear as coaches with that two foul situation is. This game, and, and you, it's the time you're referring to, sure. like a Big Ten game. Like this game is like a, it's like a mud wrestling game. So he could bump into somebody any time and get a foul. So I just can't. Now, the way the game's played and called, you, I could leave him out there. There's not that much contact. He could make it through the half with two fouls. Okay. So what I heard in that was, I'm, you're right, Greeny. So uh, another, <laughs> one, another one you agree with me. All right, third one. You're good. I believe they need to move the three-point line back. And, and I, a little bit further out. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because I hear my father in my head. My father was the best sports fan you ever met in your entire life. He hated the three-point shot. Hated it. He grew up watching college basketball, CCN. My father went to CCNY wow. and was there when they won the NCAA wow. and the NIT in the same, the same year. year. So, so I mean, he that loved was college. 50s? It was 1955. 55. I think wow. it was 55 that, they, that that happened. He was He was definitely there. And... He would always say to me, Michael, this is not basketball. Right. I mean, the objective of the game of basketball is to move the ball to get the best possible shot as close to the basket as you can, not as far from the basket as you can. Now, I'm not willing to go quite that far, right. but I do believe the three-point shot in the college game has become a little bit too easy. It has become a little bit too, for lack of a better word, too significant. Now, it has in the pros as well, but at least like, yeah. if you've got Steph Curry, that is such a unique weapon. Yeah. I feel there's too many kids that can make those shots in the college game. I'd right. like to see them move it out at least a little bit. What do you think? I wouldn't be against it, but I'm not a, an enthusiastic proponent. But but it, it wouldn't hurt. Definitely wouldn't hurt. Um, I'm, I'm afraid six fouls would get us back into fighting and okay. blood wrestling again. But that would not hurt the game. And it, it would probably help us internationally, probably help the guys transition into the NBA. Definitely wouldn't hurt. But I do and, – and we're considered a defensive coach. And I worked for Roly Massimino, and I was against the three-point line when he came in because we were tough, physical – I love where the game is. It's skill. It's, you know, the, the, the players are not, um, growing up trying to just be stronger and take the ball to the hoop and be more physical. They're growing up trying to learn skills. 
Al McGuire predicted this years ago. I remember him saying the the international. He didn't. It wasn't even international back then because it was only Europeans back then when he said it. The Europeans are going to catch up to us. They're going to catch up to, and they did. And they, it was when they won the world championships when Larry Brown coached USA team. Yeah. Argentina won. We started to see. Hey, if you if you shoot the three and you spread people out, those threes are are more valuable. You you can beat a tough physical team, and and I hated it, but I. I love it now, and I think it makes us better internationally. I, I like the game better, and I like the kids are practicing skills rather than just physicality. Okay, so in summary, you agree with me on all three points. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Final thing. We should end it on something like this. How is everything in college basketball today? If, if you're a, a, a person who only pays peripheral attention to sports, you're reading all of this stuff, right? You're reading about uh, shoe companies and, and, and the FBI and all of this stuff. And yet if you really follow the sport closely and you see it night in and night out, the games are fabulous. Yeah. The players are better than they've ever been. The one and done thing is what it is. Right. Where is the game right? You've been in it basically your whole life. Yeah. Where, where is it right now? I think it's at a better place than it's ever been, except for the fact that we just had this FBI investigation, and you have to deal with it. Like, that was a small portion of our business, but it's real. And our business is, um, you know, like 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 pro sports, you know, there's a branding, and you, you don't want it to smear the game. But the majority, and I'll throw out the number 80 85%, of the Division One basketball players, and I'd say 100% of the Division Two and Division Three basketball players are going to college. They're getting degrees. Um, our graduation rate is the highest it's it's ever been for for college basketball, and um, the women's game has grown. The women are doing the same thing. Um, 80% of these kids are getting degrees. They're having great experiences in college. They're growing into better people because of their experience. Now we've got those issues we got to deal with because there's a lot of money, and um, I think this has made us open our eyes. and And I, th- I think what we need to do is get the NBA, the apparel companies, the agents, and college basketball together because high school basketball, the apparel companies are fine, the NBA is fine, college is stuck in the middle, and we're the ones that are taking the heat for all this because everyone's getting what they want we're the only ones that have rules of amateurism high school kids aren't amateur sneaker companies are doing everything for them right right we're stuck in the middle our rules don't fit so the apparel companies are gonna they're gonna make money they're gonna run their business the nba is gonna make money they're fine but if we don't get college basketball straight and they don't help us eventually the game's gonna going to drop right now we're good but we've got to have vision and work together and fix it that's the part of it that has always confounded me and frankly frustrated me is in in any other quote-unquote crime you you are trying to eliminate something that is terrible right i mean you know uh, stealing cars no one wants cars to be stolen this is a terrible thing so we're trying to eliminate that we are turning people into criminals who are doing things that are victimless no one is being hurt in many cases obviously there are some uh, yeah. individual instances that are genuinely yeah. bad things are happening. Yeah. But by and large, the impermissible benefits, which it all comes back to, right. are victimless crimes where no one is being harmed, and yet they are treated like criminals. I, right. I mean, you, took, you take a guy like Reggie Bush, people you know, from college, it took us high 
him in a way. They act like he's a criminal yeah. because someone gave him some money and, and maybe gave his parents an apartment. Yeah. It's a victimless crime. Again, right. I'm not suggesting you should break rules. No, I understand. If they're I, sitting there. Point. But but the this is the one instance where they should change the rules as opposed to changing the behavior. You should you should augment the rules to right. fit the reality of the behavior, it seems to me. But see, I, I think you should be authentic if you want to play basketball and you feel that your talents warrant you being paid money and you're good enough, if this is a free market. We should have the rules set up that you can go to the G League or go to the NBA. You don't have to go to college. Right. Right? You know, a, 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 there's no other sport where you do this, not even football, because they, when you're com- I don't know if there's a high school kid coming out of high school that's really good enough that wouldn't get hurt if you went and played pro football. But if you're a tennis player, you can come out of high school and just become a pro. Oh, sure. You can't do that. We're forcing these kids to go to college. That's what I'm saying. This is getting dumped in the lap of college basketball. I, I don't want to... Um, diminish how important the, the FBI issue is. We, we, we have to deal with that. That's our right. own people not going by our rules. But it's just got to be authentic. It's got to be, if you're playing college basketball, that means you want to be in college. You want to go to class, right? And But if you are good enough to get paid, you should have the opportunity to go and get paid. I agree. Okay, in closing, we're here at Michael's. What's the uh, specialty of the house? What, what are uh, we ordering tonight? Well, What's per, good? The person... Everything's good here. They got special kind of, they got zucchini pizza, which is awesome. But, uh, myself, I'm very simple with, um, a little broccoli rob on, on the side with some nice pasta and Michael's red sauce, which my, my assistant, Mike Kakachi, started marketing this when he came here and now it's going national. The sauce here at this place, you gotta mm-hmm. get the red sauce. Yeah. It, you can buy it all over the country and people come here to see where it is actually being exactly. made. Well, Jay, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. It was great. It was whatever I was hoping for, it was way better. So <laughs> cool. I, I wish you nothing but continued success. And thank Thanks, you very man. much. I great really appreciate you, it. Mike. And so I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jay Wright, the basketball coach at Villanova. Such an incredibly interesting person. And again, the very first of these that we did and certainly one of the most enjoyable. I wish him great success on the coming season, which is now right around the corner. We will talk to you again next week, but I would ask you between now and then, if you have a moment to do me a huge favor, if you can, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review this podcast. I'm interested. It would uh, be an enormous favor to me and it would help us enormously if you would be so kind. Subscribe, rate and review. The podcast is I'm interested. My name is Mike Greenberg and I will see you next week.